Good morning, all. It's really wonderful to have you with us here at church, Summer Hill, this Sunday morning. And I know that there's a whole bunch of you who are joining us online who've gotten a bit sick uh, over the last week or so. Um, we're sorry that you're not with us. We look forward to you being back very soon. Uh, but be assured, uh, we are aware and we're praying for you. We'll pray for you a little bit later on this morning. Uh, and we look forward to you joining us again soon. Uh, you might remember that over the last few weeks, we'd spent uh, a few weeks, uh, aside from working through uh, a book of the Scriptures, just to take a few weeks to look at some of the messy dynamics, the most painful bits of our relationships with one another. We looked uh, one week at forgiveness, we looked at what forgiveness looks like as it moves on to reconciliation, uh, and what place rebuke and difficult speech might have in our dealings with one another. Uh, we're putting aside those thoughts for the moment, although we'll see that there's plenty of messy relationships in the part of Scripture that we're coming to look at together over this term, which is Genesis' account of Jacob. Uh, we begin in Genesis chapter 25 that Maria read out for us a little earlier this morning. So can I ask if you do, uh, if you do have the Bibles in front of you, uh, and if you don't, there are probably some at the, the sides of the church as well, you can duck up and grab one. Open it up to chapter 25, it'll be very helpful for you, and I promise you, if you doubt that, it'll be very helpful for me uh, if you have that passage open as we begin to look uh, at what is really quite a remarkable stretch of the book of Genesis over this term. Well, popular psychology has come up with a whole bunch, you could say a whole rash of different ways to help us grapple with who we are, where we fit into the world, the wider world around about us, where we might fit into our own family dynamics, our own friendship networks, our own work spheres and circles. Uh, one popular one that you might have heard of before, thrown around a bit, is that theory of birth order. Uh, people talk, I think it's uh, Alfred Adler came up with this theory that what order of birth you are in your family is going to determine your personality, the kind of person that you are. You know, perhaps if you're the firstborn, you're typically conscientious, but with maybe a tendency to be a little bit controlling at times. Or if you're one of the middle kids, uh, somewhere in the middle there, maybe you're much more sociable than the older child, but, you know, kind of expect success just to come pretty easily to you, you know? It should just roll out without much trouble. Or if you're the youngest, perhaps you're one of those carefree kind of kids, but perhaps maybe just a tiny little bit self-absorbed. Now, of course, the truth is that these sort of stereotypes actually tell us very little about the kinds of people that we are. Now, two recent studies involving over 400,000 participants have shown that this birth order theory accounts for less than 1% of what really makes up for people's character. I, I think less than 1% is just the researcher's way of basically saying not at all, but, you know, just not sounding too, uh, too absolute about it. So, friends, you can't blame your birth order, right, for the kind of person that you are. Ultimately, people are defined far more by their character than either by their birth order or by some online personality type or profile. We're defined by our character, how we understand who we are in the wider sphere of things, how we choose to use our personalities in our dealings with one another. Still, most of us really do long, don't we, to understand where it is that we fit in, to know who we are, maybe to one another, to know who we are to God, 
where we fit into his household, his plans and purposes. And unfortunately, our anxieties and our insecurities, our own character flaws, our own histories and past experiences all often conspire to cloud our vision, to blind us into where we fit into things from God's way of seeing things, from God's perspective. And this is the kind of question that Genesis actually provokes us to grapple with, to think about, to consider as it recounts the life of Jacob. It's a pretty messy, drawn-out drama of people grappling to understand and secure some sort of sense, some sure sense of their own place, their own standing in God's grander plans and purposes. And in fact, the New Testament will use this story of Jacob and Esau, and we'll come to this later on in our series, to kind of understand who we are as Christian believers, how we fit together as part of God's household. Uh, That'll be in future weeks. Well, this account of Jacob's life begins in Genesis 25. So how about we turn uh, and focus our attention uh, on how the Scriptures introduce us uh, to this account. We're looking at Genesis chapter 25. Uh, You'll find that on page 26. And I'm going to read from verse 19 as we kick it off. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, of the Aramean from Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? I suspect maybe she didn't whisper it. Maybe she cried it out. Why is this happening to me? Laments Rebecca, as she struggles with some unseen sibling rivalry warring away within her own womb. I can just imagine maybe Rebecca going to Isaac later and suggesting, um, uh, Isaac... Next time before you start asking God for something on my behalf, maybe you just want to check in with me on the precise wording of what you're going to ask first. You know, maybe just one child at a time, maybe not two. But of course, Isaac's long and faithful prayerfulness was out of compassion for his wife. For Isaac's longs for Rebecca to find her own honoured part in God's plans and purposes. Plans and purposes that he'd already announced to, to Isaac's father, Abraham. But the sobering reality is that God's answer has at this point resulted in not insignificant grief and trouble and distress for Rebecca, who's carrying these two children. Why is this happening to me? Why, Lord, is this happening to me? It's one thing to find ourselves grappling with the everyday anxieties and ambiguities of life, as messy as it can be, but when even our own heartfelt cries to God seem to be answered with strife and struggle, who of us can resist asking God, why is this happening to you? Why is this answer that you've given to me, to my prayers and to my longings? And sometimes God's answer to our prayers about His plans and His purposes are even more painful and confusing at points than simply the silence and uncertainty that we might otherwise experience. What's amazing about Rebecca's faith, though, at this point, whatever is going on in her head precisely, 
is that even in her distress, it is still the Lord to whom she turns for answers. Uh, This time she doesn't rely on Isaac's prayer, she inquires of the Lord herself. Have a look with me at verse 22, we'll pick it up there again, where we left off. Uh, We read in verse 22, uh, the babies jostled each other within her and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the elder will serve the younger. There's both a grief and a glory in these words that the Lord declares to Rebecca, isn't there? The wrestling and strife that she's enduring within her own womb, it turns out that strife isn't meaningless. It's symbolic of the wrestling and family strife that will mark the family history that flows out from the birth of these two expected twins. It's symbolic of a generational and ultimately a national and international conflict that will grow out of God's decision to choose differently from the way in which humans often think to choose. Notice where humans tend to choose the stronger, God often chooses the weaker, whether it's nations like Israel or individuals like Jacob versus Esau. Where other humans might tend to honour the older son, God declares instead that He's going to bless the younger In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul actually describes God's actions at this moment in Israel's history with these words. These are the words from Romans chapter 9. There the Apostle Paul says, Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by Him who calls... She was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Uh, In saying that God loved Jacob and hated Esau, Paul isn't saying anything about how God is emotionally moved by his feelings about the two. Rather, instead to be guided, instead of being guided, sorry, by human performance, by human behaviour and achievement, God makes and executes His plans and His purposes as He alone sees fit. He decides in advance what He is going to do and what He is going to achieve and through whom. To hate Esau is simply to choose not to ultimately work through Him to achieve His purposes. And to love Jacob is to choose to execute His plans through this younger son who will be born grasping the heel of his older brother. Now, Isaac knows that God plans to do something amazing through his offspring. We notice that at the end of the reading that Maria had for us. You might want to glance over to chapter 26. It's in the same open section of your Bibles. Uh, Chapter 26, verses 3 to 4, we see that what God himself says to Isaac... Uh, after the birth of the boys, stay in this land for a while and I will be with you and I will bless you. Similar kinds of promises that God had made to Isaac's father, Abraham. For to you and your descendants, I will give these lands and will confirm the oath that I swore to your father, Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring, 
all the nations of the earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him. God has already identified that he chooses, he's choosing to bless all the nations of the earth ultimately somehow through Isaac's seed. And we read at the start of today's passage that God has already, already identified Jacob, the younger son, as the one through whom God is choosing to deliver these blessings. But it turns out that probably isn't how Isaac would have arranged things if it was him making the choices, the decisions. Have a look with me at verse 27, back in chapter 25 again. Verse 27. We read that the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. This very brief description of the two grown brothers, I think, are regularly described in rather unhelpful kinds of ways. Uh, perhaps you've heard of these kind of ways of describing these two sons before, maybe you remember it, vague memories from those felt things in Sunday school where they tell the story of uh, Jacob and Esau. Um, maybe you've heard people say that Esau was kind of like an outdoors man's man, a model of active masculinity, and Jacob, well, he's a bit of a passive mama's boy content to be led about by Rebecca's own apron strings. But friends, that way of viewing these two brothers is more about the insecure and anxious male stereotypes than it is about careful and attentive reading, attention to what Scripture itself says about these two brothers. Esau, we're told, is a man of the open country, uh, in other words, the open field. Um, other translations use field rather than open country. Uh, the word field and open country is used multiple times, actually, throughout the book of Genesis. You might recall that the field or the open country is actually the word that was used to describe the wild, scrubbed outside lands, outside the Garden of Eden, outside of that cultivated garden that God had prepared for humanity. We're told that the serpent was the most crafty animal of the field, of the open countryside. The open countryside, or the field, was where Cain led Abel to murder him. Now, I don't want to read too much into exactly who this Esau character is on this account, but at least it's not a whole great lot of associations, is it, to begin with? I don't think it's saying that he's a free, liberated man... And the language here of Esau being a hunter, only two people are described that way in the Old Testament as being a mighty or a skillful hunter. The other one was a reportedly violent man named Nimrod who founded the notoriously evil cultures of Nineveh, Babel and Assyria. Esau is a man who is at least being vaguely associated with pretty much everything contrary to God's stated will to that which opposes God's purposes. Think about Nineveh, Assyria, the Tower of Babel. Esau is a man that we want to keep an eye out about how he thinks about God's plans and purposes, how he responds to them. Now, Jacob, we're told, in contrast, is a man 
of tents. Uh, back in Genesis chapter 4, I've forgotten to have it here in my notes, so I'm going to try and read from the, uh, from the sheet up there. Actually, I'm going to go back because that's too small for my eyesight. Genesis chapter 4, uh, and it's verses 20 to 22. We often think about J- uh, Jacob being a man of the tents as someone who's just wanting to stay at home, someone who's really not that motivated to get out and do anything with his life uh, and his skills. But instead, back in Genesis uh, chapter, 24, uh, so chapter 4, verse 20, we read, uh, Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. Zilhar also had a son, Tubalcain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Jacob, we're told here, the implication is, not a man who's just passive, too lazy to get out and achieve or do anything. Here's a man who carefully tended and ordered the world around about him. Here's one who sought to establish good order for the flourishing of a community of people, not just a solo loan operator out in the wilderness. Not just to take care of his own solo needs, but that of a whole community of people. We're also told in that verse that Jacob was a content man. It's a curious way to describe Jacob using that word. Uh, Throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, in fact, uh, and in other books of the Old Testament as well, everywhere else this word that's translated there as content is actually translated as blameless. It's a word that's used to describe Noah, a word that's used to describe Abraham and Job. All are described as blameless using that very same word. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, Uh, We've got that up on the screen as well. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. The very same word used here to describe Jacob. Now, blameless doesn't mean sinless. Uh, We know that neither Noah nor Abraham, Abraham nor Jacob ultimately turn out to be sinless. But to be blameless means to ultimately live in line with God's purposes, to have lives that are shaped by, given form by God's plans and purposes. Jacob is a man who is, or at least is going to be, aligned with God's will, a man seeking to conform himself to what God is choosing to do, though it does take several goes for him to come to terms with exactly what that looks like. Now, given the marked difference between the two brothers, it's sobering to note how differently their parents responded to them. Did you notice how the the parents both respond to them? Have a look with me again at verse 28. Verse 28, we read a moment ago, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Isaac favoured the son who blessed and served his own appetites. It is Isaac's own grumbling stomach that stirs and guides the hungry affections of his heart for this son Esau. While we're told that Rebekah loved Jacob, we're not given any reason for why it was that Rebekah did love Jacob. We're left to ponder what it is that maybe stirred her affections or 
led her to prefer her son, Jacob. Likely, it was not because of anything that Jacob did or anything that Jacob was. Most likely, it was because he was the one that God had told her he had chosen to work through. Very different responses of the two parents, isn't it? So often, tensions and grief arrive amongst us, uh, uh, kind of arise amongst us as God's people when we set our hearts not on what God has preferred, what God has loved, what God has chosen, but upon the appetites of our own hearts or our own stomachs. We're going to come back and have a reflection on that as we finish uh, our time in this passage together this morning. It's a bit of a repeating pattern, actually, throughout the Scriptures that God often favours those people who others are quick to despise. It's true of Jacob in many ways, as we'll see, as we work through the book of Genesis. It was true of David. You might remember King David, who was the son who wasn't even considered first up to be one who might take on that mantle of God's king over the people of Israel. He was even forgotten about. He had to be sent for and brought to consider whether or not he might be the one who God had chosen. And in a very true sense, that's actually true of Jesus as well, isn't it? You remember, as we're looking through John's Gospel earlier, Jesus was one about whom people said, can anything good, can anything worthwhile come out of Nazareth? But in contrast to the way in which people often spoke about the Lord Jesus, God was the one who announced at his baptism, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. God declares his pleasure often in those who others will often skate over and not give any second thought to or attention to or thought about at all. Isaac didn't seem willing to acknowledge that his younger son, Jacob, was someone through whom God might conceivably choose to bless the world. And this failure is going to ultimately compromise the whole family dynamic of this family as we see moving forward. And likewise, those who fail to acknowledge Jesus as the son whom God favours, the son that God has chosen, will often find themselves alienated from and lacking any assurance of their own place and security and standing within God's own family. How you respond to the son that God has set his favour upon is going to ultimately be the grounds of your confidence in God's family. And that is as true for Isaac, Jacob, Esau and Rebekah and their family as it is for us in our response to the son that God loves the Lord Jesus. Well, it seems that Isaac wasn't the only one, uh, though, whose hungry appetites put him at odds with God's plans and purposes. Like father, like son, it seems. Have a look with me at verse 29 of chapter 25. Verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, from the field, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthrights. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate, he drank, and he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. 
Uh, very few days go past in my own household without someone declaring with the utmost urgency and seriousness, I'm starving. What is there for me to eat? And I reckon we should take Esau's complaint about being on death's door with almost the same level of seriousness and concern. After all, once Jacob serves up the lentil soup, we read that Jacob ate, drank, got up and left in very quick succession. How long does it take to scoff down soup? Maybe a minute or two? I've played games of football with my kids that took me longer to recover from than that. Jacob can't have been on death's door when he got back to Jacob's camp. It was not near starvation that Esau was suffering from, but a bloated sense of his own entitlement and self-importance. So consumed was Esau in his own self-importance that he had little hesitance in in selling his birthright for a cup of soup. And now the birthright that he sold here to Jacob was basically the honoured position of first son in the family. It was the embodiment, to be the firstborn, to have the birthright of firstborn, was to be the embodiment of the father's strength and status and standing, to represent the father. To have a birthright was to have a double portioned inheritance. That is, that the older son would have a double inheritance and all the other kids would have, you know, just one share each, in order to ensure that the firstborn remained honoured and resourced to be able to carry on the father's plans and purposes. And Esau's inflated sense of entitlement and self-importance led him to despise that honoured place that he enjoyed in the family. It led him to despise his father's misplaced affection for him. It led him to despise the privileged future he'd simply assumed he was going to one day receive, despite what God had said to Rebecca. And at this point, Jacob, I don't think, has done anything especially sneaky or manipulative at all. There's not yet anything deceptive or devious in his actions. Jacob simply knows that Esau despises his privileged place. He treats it as virtually nothing. And so he puts Esau's worthiness as the firstborn to the test. And it's a test that Esau fails catastrophically and without the slightest sign of regret as he gets up and walks off belly full. I wonder if you've ever found yourself exasperated at someone who seems to despise or treat with contempt some great honour that they enjoy that most others don't get to appreciate or benefit in. Have you ever had that experience? The frustration that just bubbles up when you, when you, you look at someone and you think, can't you see what you have? How dare you treat it with such contempt? I think such is the outrage that Jacob experiences as he looks at the way his brother lived the life of the firstborn. And it's an exasperation, I think, that the writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament also grapples with, as he writes to Christians and the life of their experience of living as God's people. As he, like Jacob, is forced to watch as believers despise the inheritance that they are set to inherit through the Lord Jesus. I've got there up on the screen uh, just a couple of little snippets from the passage of Hebrews that we also had read to us earlier on this morning uh, by Maria. There the writer of Hebrews, writing to Christians, says, 
See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. And we'll come to look at that next week. And then a few verses later on, the writer continues on. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the gathering or the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. The writer of Hebrews uh, here instinctively, initially, associates the insistent appetite of sexual immoral desire with Esau's hopelessly absurd lusting after lentil soup an appetite that might cause us to despise or to turn away from, abandon our hope in the internal inheritance of God's firstborn Jesus that He, Jesus, has promised to share with us. And it's almost certain that there probably are some of us amongst this gathering here this morning who attempted to make that kind of hasty trade, that kind of barter, that some of us even now are contemplating putting aside the inheritance that the Lord Jesus as firstborn has said he is willing to share with us for that more immediate satisfaction. But friends, I reckon we'd be fools to imagine that sex is the only appetite that has the potential to dull the joy that God's gracious gifts should rightly arouse within us. Perhaps this morning we're tempted to trade the peace that comes from savouring God's mercy towards us in Jesus. We're tempted to trade that peace for the soothing relief of revenge and payback in the here and now for someone who's wronged us. Perhaps we're tempted to trade the wealth of what God has got stored up for us in Christ Jesus for the kind of financial security that is promised to us by overwork or by deceitful practices in how we go about our work. Perhaps we're tempted to trade our share in the honoured name of Christ, that honoured name that Christ himself shares with us as his disciples. We're tempted to train that, trade that share in that honoured name for a name and a reputation that is just honoured amongst our own professional industry, our own little work circles. Perhaps we're tempted to trade the assurance of God's intimate delight in us through Jesus for the approval of our own world's most powerful and influential people. Perhaps we're tempted to trade the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ for the company of faltering fools, flattering fools, who speak lovely-sounding lies that affirm us, but really express no love and concern for us at all. Perhaps we're ready to trade the comfort and the consolation of Jesus' spirit dwelling within us for the oblivion of drunkenness that momentarily dulls our despair or our self-loathing. Friends, the book of Hebrews warns us not to trade what is promised to us in the Lord Jesus, not to trade what God has said we will share in with the Lord Jesus for those things that might momentarily promise us satisfaction or security or a more secure future. In knowing Christ, we already share in every blessing that Jesus possesses as God's firstborn, 
as that last line in that verse up on the screen mentions, Jesus is the firstborn and we are part of His gathering, His church. We get to share in all the blessings that come to Him as the firstborn. Unlike Jacob, who doesn't yet see or grasp how he's going to ultimately find his place in God's family, we already share in every blessing that Jesus possesses as God's firstborn. Dare we despise such a position of honour that has been shared with us in order to satisfy just those momentary appetites that assail us? How about we pray and ask that in God's kindness He might focus our attention on the Lord Jesus in whom we not only experience a place in God's plans and purposes, we don't only experience a place, a position, a lesser position in God's family, we actually get to share and experience the position of firstborn along with our older brother. Let's pray. Dearest Father, we are creatures who are assailed by all kinds of insecurities, all kinds of lack of confidence and certainty about who we are to ourselves, let alone who we are to others, even who we are to you and one another as members of your church. And yet, Father, we do see that even in our own insecurities and foolishness, you are working to draw us into your own plans and purposes, into your own household. Father, we ask that you would focus our attention upon the Lord Jesus in whom we find our position before you. That instead of grasping after in anxiety or fear or pride a position amongst your people, that we might rest in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus who shares everything that he has with us. And in him we might find rest before you and in our lives with one another as your precious and chosen people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.